When did... From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. I want to remind you that if you miss any part of today's program, you can find it and all of the other programs at TonyPerkins.com. Also, the Washington Watch audience continues to grow rapidly and is now being offered on many new platforms. The latest to join the Washington Watch family is NRB TV, which is available in more than 39 million households across the United States on Direct TV channel 378. If you are watching us there, welcome to Washington Watch. And for those of you who are not watching us there, now you know that you can. Direct TV channel 378. Every weekday from 5 to 6 Eastern. Today on the program, some really interesting stories as well as some breaking news that we're going to be covering today. Some Nebraska parents are concerned about what they've learned about their state board of education. We'll talk about what they learned and why it's such a problem. Also, there's so much concern with school board meetings and school boards around the country. Is it random or is it in fact is what we're seeing the coordinated effort of progressive national groups? We'll talk about that later in the program as well. Finally, at the end, during our worldview segment, have you ever heard someone say, well, Jesus never talked about it, so he must must not care. We're going to discuss whether that's a good argument or not in our worldview segment with David Clausen at the end of the program. But first, the headlines for today. Yesterday, the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, which President Biden established in early April by executive order, released its preliminary assessment of reform proposals for the court. In their first set of discussion materials, the commission did not take the position on a, did not take a position on the proposals, but instead presented the drawbacks and advantages. Most notably, regarding the issue of court packing, the commission said that the risks of court expansion are considerable, adding that it could undermine the very goal of some of its proponents of restoring the court's legitimacy. That is probably an understatement. As for term limits, there appeared to be more of a consensus that the idea of imposing them on the justices is worth exploring. And that could be enough for those on the left who are incensed over the court's supposed 6-3 conservative majority. Notably, next week will mark Justice Clarence Thomas's 30th year on the bench. So what can we draw from the commission's preliminary assessment? Joining me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Representative Tom McClintock. He is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and also the House Budget Committee. He represents the 4th Congressional District of California. Congressman McClintock, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Joseph, for having me. We're glad to have you. Tell me, what was your reaction to the report from the Supreme Court Commission? Well, I I was frankly surprised and delighted. I mean, this whole commission has been set up uh, in order to uh, move the debate uh, in favor of packing the Supreme Court. The the left laid out their five objectives of how to seize permanent control of our country uh, before the last election. So, you know, people should have been aware of uh, packing the uh, Senate with a a new Democratic states like uh, Puerto Rico. 
of uh, uh, leaving our borders wide open and providing a path to citizenship for the millions and millions of illegals currently in the country. Um, uh, also uh, rigging the election laws uh, the, the way they have in California, bypassing the electoral college with this uh, compact of the states, and most fundamentally, packing the Supreme Court by adding new leftist seats. If they're able to accomplish these objectives, it's game set and match for our country. There is no way back from that. Uh, and this commission was supposed to tee up the ball uh, for them to remove um, a court pack. And it came up with a uh, with a much more nuanced uh, initial approach, which I thought was very interesting. I would agree with you that I, I believe that the report, the response from, from the commission does not accomplish the, the objectives for which the commission was set up. And it remains to be seen how our friends on the left feel about this, though, uh, notably, the left-wing members of the court uh, were more cautious than the advocates in Congress. And I, in fact, want to play this clip from uh, Justice Breyer, uh, who is one of the members of the left wing of the court. And he had this to say. I want to let you listen to this and then respond. Before people make major changes in the court, I would like them to read or otherwise understand what I've written and to think about it pretty deeply. And it is an institution I'll just repeat this. It's an institution that, fallible though it is, over time has served this country pretty well. He, of course, was saying that uh, in the context of, uh, of caution regarding major reforms to the Supreme Court. Do you think that the commissioners uh, listened to Justice Breyer? Well, it's not just Justice Breyer. If you recall, before death, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said exactly the same thing. You know, the, the Constitution leaves it to the Congress to set the, the number of Supreme Court seats. And yet, since 1869, the Congress has resisted the temptation to tinker with the, this, this court, which is, is really the central referee uh, of our political institutions. They, they've, they've resisted that temptation, even as popular majorities have shifted dramatically from election to election. The court's moral authority stems from the fact that its members serve life terms. They span many administrations. So adding seats to achieve a political outcome uh, would destroy its credibility and I think also destroy the stability that the court guarantees uh, in, in our uh, republic. You know, one other thought about this. You know, we've all seen the depictions of justice blindfolded. Because justice is administered without preference or prejudice in, in our nation of laws. But you will find one depiction of justice with her eyes wide open. It's in the old Supreme Court chamber of the Capitol. And the reason her eyes are wide open is because she is looking to the Constitution. That is the proper role of a Supreme Court justice. Now, the left would reverse that. They would have her blind to the Constitution and partial to whom stands before her. That's the critical difference. Do, the final report uh, for this commission is due out on November 14th. Do you now have hope that the final report will be as nuanced as their, their preliminary findings? Or do you think that they're going to change direction in light of the responses to this? Well, my expectation is they'll change the direction uh, to conform to, to, to the objectives of, of the left. 
Um, uh, I, I hope I will be uh, uh, as uh, surprised uh, by the outcome as I was by this preliminary report. But you know, the, the, the fundamental difference is that the Democrats see the court as a policymaking branch. Republicans see it as a constitutional referee. And, and the, you know, that's why conservatives are often disappointed when a conservative justice ends up rendering an opinion that results in liberal policy. To them, it's not the policy that matters, but the law. Unfortunately, the further to the left you move, the more they view justice's role to, to contort the law to make a preferred policy. That's what they're go doing with court packing. And again, it's one of the, 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 the five objectives that they were quite brazen in outlining before the election. Uh, uh, and, and if they're successful, as I said, uh, our, 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 the, 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 the form of government that has protected our freedom for two and a half centuries uh, will be rendered impotent. I think the primary thing that this commission was considering is court packing, and I know that you are not in support of that. Is there any uh, modification, reform that the commission could propose that you would actually support? Well, Lord Acton said it best. When it is not necessary to change, it is necessary not to change. I would be very careful in tinkering with the fundamental architecture of our Constitution. It's been proven over time. Great. Now, I want to switch gears with you uh, for a moment. You're the ranking member on the House Subcommittee on Immigration and Citizenship. Yesterday, you wrote a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a warning of an urgent terrorist threat to the United States after the Taliban's release of 7,000 prisoners from the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Tell us about your concern. Well, let's be clear. It wasn't the Taliban that released them, really. It was Joe Biden. Joe Biden took a phased conditional withdrawal under Donald Trump and turned it into an unconditional surrender to the Taliban. Uh, one of the terrible things that he did, which Donald Trump never intended to do, was to completely surrender and abandon Bagram uh, Air Base. Uh, we put $30 billion into that base. It was always Trump's design to continue to maintain it, continue to occupy it, to use it uh, as a strategic base, not only to guarantee the stability of Afghanistan, uh, but the entire region. That was all thrown away. One of the reasons we were holding Bagram is because within Bagram, we were holding about 7,000 of the most hardened terrorists in the Middle East. Um, when uh, Biden abandoned Bagram in the middle of the night, without even informing the, the Afghan allies that he was planning to do so, that pulled the rug out from under the Afghan uh, defense forces. That's why I think they collapsed so fast. But it also put 7,000 of these terrorists back into circulation. Now, we do know what one of those 7,000 terrorists did. Ten days later, 11 days later, uh, he was the suicide bomber who killed 13 of our service members, including a constituent of mine, uh, at the Abbey Gate at uh, Kabul Airport. That was what one of them did. There are 7,000 others. We don't know what they're doing right now, but I'll bet it's a pretty good guess that more than a few of them are making their way into our country right now uh, to perform the same kind of terrorist acts. And it's easy to do with our southern border wide open. Uh, so you know, we, we are uh, demanding of um, uh, Homeland Security Secretary to tell us exactly what countries uh, are we encountering uh, these uh, this this massive wave of migration from? 
and how many of them have been identified as terrorists uh, already? Do you have any reason to believe that the southern border is being used, has been used uh, by terrorist organizations to infiltrate the country? Well, of course we know, uh, because we, we've caught a number of them and identified them as known terrorists. Uh, uh, you know, that's been going on uh, uh, since Biden took over. And by the way, those are the ones we catch. There are another 350,000 gotaways, and that is a very, very conservative number, 350,000 that we either saw on camera or, or tracked and yet could not get to. So we don't know anything about those 350,000. Um, uh, we do know this. We are seeing one of the largest mass migrations in human history. Uh, no civilization has ever survived that magnitude uh, of a migration. My God, in, in July, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol encountered more than 200,000 people illegally crossing the border. That's roughly the population of Salt Lake City. And then another 200,000 plus illegally crossed in August. So you can add Des Moines, Iowa to that number. And as I said, then on top of that, throw up the 350,000 ways that we're able to document that we know nothing about. Um, and, and you begin to, to, to recognize the, the, the magnitude of the problem. 350,000, that's the population of Anaheim, California. Congressman and, and McClintock? pretty good bet. And I think it's a pretty good bet that within those numbers, we're going to be seeing more and more of those 7,000 determined, hardened terrorists coming into our country. And it's just a matter of time before Americans die as a result. Congressman McClintock, we are out of time. We appreciate your time. Another potentially 60,000 more coming from Panama presently. Uh, we'll want to talk with you about it later. Thanks for being with us. Coming up at Nebraska, talk about some parents' concerns. Stay with us. With tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742. And FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Join us for FRC and FRC Action's inaugural Pray Vote Stand Summit. In light of the growing opposition our culture has expressed against biblical principles and the truth of God's Word, we've launched Pray Vote Stand Summit to equip and encourage Christians to respond to this opposition from a biblical worldview. We will address issues such as protecting the unborn, the importance of the nuclear family, domestic and international religious liberty, developments in our nation's education system, and more. We see the need for the restoration of a biblical foundation in our nation and the necessity to equip Christians to effectively engage the culture and understand current events through a biblical lens. Join us at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia from October 6th through the 8th for the Pray Vote Stand Summit. Register online at prayvotestand.org slash summit or by calling 877-372-2811. 
1-800-273-8108. More than ever before, Christians need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. By applying the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality, the experts at the center have provided resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. To understand why scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. Access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series at frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including their latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us. Last week, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the formation of a federal task force to respond to what he said is a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators. So far, the Department of Justice has not offered any specific cases. What there clearly has been, however, is a spike in the number of concerned parents across the nation who are standing up in opposition to radical ideology and sexually explicit materials presented as curriculum. In Nebraska, concerned parents have exposed the deceptions of the Nebraska Department of Education, which had told parents that no external activists were involved in drafting its controversial state sex education curriculum. Last month, parents and even grandparents in the Cornhusker State gave the State Board of Education an earful. Wow. By now, we have all heard the process for developing the health sex education standards were manipulated from the very beginning, with key activists intentionally inserted as subject matter experts. We know that many standards were copied directly from the national sex education standards written by activists like CECUS, Advocates for Youth, and Planned Parenthood. We know that members of this board were aware of this as well as Nebraska Department of Education staff. Now that we know all of this, what's going to happen next and who will be accountable? Joining us now to talk about what's going on in Nebraska is Patrick Hoff, staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon, who has been covering this story. Patrick, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Well, tell us first, what have the parents in Nebraska learned? Yes, yeah, so they filed some a freedom of information request uh, to obtain some emails uh, between the Nebraska Department of Education um, and these activists. And what they found was that uh, a member of the board, elected Board of Education in Nebraska, Deborah Neary, was coordinating and pushing the Nebraska Department of Education to add this, you know, this activist who's very connected to Planned Parenthood. He used to work for Planned Parenthood for over a decade. Um, is now on the board of directors for Friends of Planned Parenthood. Her name is Lisa Schultz. And, and this member of, of the board was advocating for her to be on the advisory team of these sex ed standards. And all the while this was happening behind the scenes, which is shown in these emails, um, the NDE, the Nebraska Department of Education, was denying the fact that there were any activists involved in the process, which appears to be contradicted by, by what they found. Now, it might be unusual uh, to, to some 
explain why the parents had even asked these questions, because you say that the State Board of Education had denied that there were any external activists involved in this. Why was that question even asked in the first place? Yeah, so if, if, if you read through the first draft of the standards, which were released in March, it, it's hard to believe that this was just written by teachers. So, so in first grade, ch- students would have been taught about gender identity. In fifth grade, they would have been taught about hormone therapy for, for transgender people. Um, in seventh grade, they'd be taught about oral and anal sex. In eighth grade, reproductive care, which we all know is basically just teaching about abortion. Um, so, so obviously, the parents saw this is insane. This is radical. They're showing up to these board meetings uh, and one parent decided to step up, filed this this FOIA, and uh, found exactly what he suspected all along was what the, there were activists behind this the whole time. We have covered similar stories of, of parents in the Northeast in Rhode Island who filed uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and also discovered concerning things in the communications between uh within the Department of Education in their state, and really just a kind of a a disdain and a resentment uh, for parents. Do the parents, does the community have any recourse in these cases? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's great to see parents getting involved in this way. I mean, FOIAs are a great resource for not only reporters, but but the public. Um, So obviously there was pushback from the NDE, especially in the emails, you can see uh, they were very aggravated with these parents getting involved. My favorite part of, of these emails um, was an exchange between two members of the Nebraska Department of Education, um, and they got an email from a concerned grandmother who, who was very logical and just saying, "Hey, uh, these standards are radical. You know, this is this not, should not be taught by teachers." Um, and one of the NDE um, employees sends it to one of her coworkers and. And complains, oh, my goodness, this, this woman is so crazy, blah, 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 blah. And then her coworker responds, I'm so sorry you have to get these emails. I'm sending you a self-care package for your troubles. I mean, again, this is just the grandmother expressing her concerns, but they need self-care packages because they're so hurt. Any indication of what might have been included in the self-care package? No idea, but uh, I would have loved to see it. I mean, I just... One can I, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, Patrick, we've heard these stories, and Loudoun County has been kind of in the headlines of these school board battles around the country, and people might not be surprised about that because Loudoun County is kind of close enough to the swamp to maybe be considered part of the swamp. Nebraska is by no one's standards part of the swamp. It's a red state. Um, what does this mean if the same problems they're having in Loudoun County are also happening in Nebraska, a place where the state's political leadership is actually quite conservative? No, it, it, it is concerning. And that's what really popped out about the story to me. It's like, yeah, this is, this is the heartland. What's going on here? Um, so, yeah, there's more of a sharp divide. I mean, this is, you know, sort of David versus Goliath story here. You have these, you know, conservative-leaning parents in Nebraska, uh, and then you have these, you know, radical liberal activists within the Nebraska Department of Education who are not elected. The Board of, of, of uh, Education are elected officials there, but the Nebraska Department of Education, they're appointed. So you have sort of, you know, this idea of the swamp, but I guess in the Nebraska legislature. Um, so it's, it's really about ensuring that there's conservative representation in the government, um, you know, where these sorts of curriculums and these sorts of ways of communication are all done behind the scenes. 
And I, I think this story also serves as a warning because a lot of parents see stories in other places, in places like Loudoun County and say, oh, that's too bad. But that could never happen here. I live in a uh, rural county. I live in a conservative state. We don't have those concerns here. And what this story, I think, is illustrating for the world to see is that it doesn't matter where you are. The activists are very intentional about embedding themselves in the positions of influence within the education department. And regardless of who the governor is, regardless of who the majority in the state legislature is, they do their work kind of under the cover of darkness and kind of out of sight uh, of a lot of people. And parents, it's only because parents got involved and cared that they, uh, we even know about this. Patrick Hoff, really appreciate your time and helping us learn about this as well. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for coming on, coming on. Thank you for your time. After the break, we're gonna continue covering this are these incidences with curriculum at the school board level random or are they part of a national coordinated effort? We're going to talk about it after the break with Meg Kilgannon. Stay with us. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Have you ever tried to read the Bible daily, but struggled to get in a groove? It can be hard, especially if you don't know where to start, or how to understand and apply what you've read. Or maybe it's just that doing it alone has made it too easy to give up. Well, let me encourage you. You don't have to do this daily discipline alone. You can join Family Research Council's Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. God's Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. That is why we want to read the Bible daily, and we'd love for you to join us so we can stay grounded in God's truth and grow closer to God together. Our hope is that this plan will help you be transformed by God's Word, by reading and hearing it daily. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. That's frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. In the last segment, we talked about how Nebraska's proposed sex ed curriculum was heavily influenced by left-wing activist groups, such as the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. Well, you shouldn't be surprised to hear that there are more outside organizations that are also part of the effort. The SPLC's Radical Learning for Justice program, What Parents, Teachers, and Administrators Need to Know. This is the new publication released by FRC. The author with me now, Meg Kilgannon, is here to discuss it. She's a senior fellow for education studies 
at Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to see you, Joseph. Thank you. It's good to see you, and I want to get into your publication because it is very timely, but we actually have some breaking news we want to lead this segment with. What is happening in Loudoun County? Parents have been pushing back against the radical ideologies that are being forced on students there, and today there was a massive victory. Uh, Yesterday, parents held a press conference, and Tony interviewed Ian Pryor about that on Washington Watch. And in response to that today, uh, the superintendent made a statement where he he issued a sort of an apology, but there's a resignation now from the school board. Um, One of the school board members there was in a recall campaign that was working its way through the courts, and she has decided to resign her seat because of all the opposition. So this is a a huge victory for parents. It proves that when you put your shoulder to the wheel, you show up at those school board meetings, you make your voices heard, you advocate for your children, you can make a difference. The system will respond. And the system in Loudoun County certainly is responding. Other developments out of Loudoun County, and I will just say it's incredible to me that national news is regularly covering the school board in a singular county in the United States. But really, this school board, uh, local school board issue is really a national story. But Scott Ziegler, who's the superintendent of the Loudoun County School District, he made a statement today. He had previously claimed that he had no knowledge of any assaults in school restrooms. Well, evidence has recently surfaced that he, in fact, did have knowledge of some assaults in school restrooms. This is the statement that he made today. I want to listen to that and then respond. I regret that my comments were misleading and I apologize for the distress that error caused families. I should have asked board member Bartsch clarifying questions to get to the root of her question rather than assuming what she meant. I will do better in the future. Meg, what's your take on his response? Well, it's sort of a half admission of a, of a wrongdoing. I'm, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm sorry that what I said hurt your feelings, sort of a statement, right? Not necessarily sorry that he said it. But uh, regardless of that, um, the point is that he only made that statement and he only made that apology because it was demanded of him by parents across Loudoun County. And actually, given the press coverage that this has gotten across the country, You know, parents all over the country are watching this school system now because it's getting so much media attention. And that pressure is very real and it has real consequences. And let's remind people why this matters, because there was an assault in a restroom in the Loudoun County schools and they denied that it happened. The same student, it appears, has been accused of committing an additional assault in the same school district restrooms because of the same policy that allows boys to present as girls and just access a girl's restroom, locker room, anytime they want. That policy remains in effect. Um, Also worth noting that a lawsuit has now been filed against the school district. Meg, is this this going to see a result in any change? It it will... We just have to stay tuned. I mean, you would think that uh, having a situation where a female student is assaulted by a male student in a restroom, you would think that that would would mean that the safety of female students was going to be enhanced. 
And uh, sadly, the transgender model policy that Loudoun County adopted um, allows access to anyone who identifies as a woman has access to female spaces. And this is simply not safe for women. Uh, so I, I hope that they will consider rescinding that policy or at least amending that policy to not include access to women's spaces for those students. Uh, we'll see. Now, Meg, these are local stories. They have national implications. You've released a paper this week uh, called the SPLC's Radical Learning for Justice Program, What Parents, Teachers, and Administrators Need to Know. Tell us what you've learned and what you describe in this new publication. Well, part of the, the, the outcry from parents has been longstanding outcry has been over radical sex education. And we know that outside groups, big money groups, are behind the push for radicalizing sex education, right? Planned Parenthood, SICUS, Advocates for Youth, the, the groups that that, that that parent or grandparent who knows what she's talking about, who was testifying in Nebraska in the previous clip, you know, parents are on to this. And I want to make sure that parents are also aware that groups like Southern Poverty Law Center are pushing out the same kind of nonsense about race. So you need to be aware of that and fight it in your school systems. More information about how this local, apparently local conflict, these apparently local conflicts, are actually part of a national movement. Check out that publication if you care about education, and I know that you do. Meg Kilgannon, thanks so much for your time again today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joseph. And we are going to come back after the break. Another important question is the fact that Jesus isn't recorded as having discussed the subject, licensed to think whatever we want about it. We're going to discuss that in the Worldview segment coming up next with David Clausen. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically, one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to influence public policy and culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that prepares and equips students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview trainings, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns will have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls them. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving interns the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Is real biblical masculinity lost forever? In this culture of gender confusion, there are too few examples of godly manhood. So where can men, husbands, and fathers find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength in this culture? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender 
provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have a generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us this Friday afternoon. These days... It seems many of our Christian brothers and sisters use the Jesus didn't say you can't card to excuse or suggest support for ideas that any honest reading of God's word would not show evidence of support for. For instance, folks like the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice make the claim that God condones abortion because Jesus is never recorded as having explicitly forbid it. Similar arguments have been made about homosexuality. Are these arguments from silence good theology? Joining me now to discuss what Christians should make of these issues that Jesus doesn't necessarily address in the red letters is FRC's David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph. Now, I want to get to the question, a little bit of a cliffhanger, but first, we got a couple of things, developments in the last week uh, for the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Pray Vote Stand Summit happened last week, a great event. Uh, tell us what happened, what you learned, and how people can catch up in case they missed it. Yeah, so a lot of our listeners, Joseph, are familiar with the Values Voter Summit. It's kind of the uh, main social conservative gathering that happens each year in Washington, D.C., that Family Research Council and FRC Action throw, uh, put together. Uh, that event has been changed. It's now become the Pray Vote Stand Summit. We held the first uh, annual Pray Vote Stand Summit last week in Leesburg, Virginia at Cornerstone Chapel. And on day three of the program, uh, on Friday, last Friday, uh, the Center for Biblical Worldview uh, was a major part of that. Uh, uh, George Barna, our senior research fellow, uh, gave a talk where he unpacked some of his latest research on what a worldview is, the state of worldview in America, the state of worldview in the church. Uh, then after that, we had a panel discussion. Uh, I served as moderator. Uh, George was on the panel. You were on the panel. And Nancy Piercy, uh, the well-known author and uh, writer who's at Houston Baptist University. Uh, and then after that, I did an interview. Uh, it was an interesting interview because uh, with Owen Strand, who was remote, but we, we piped him in. And we discussed his uh, latest book, Christianity and Wokeness, uh, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel. And so it was just a, a bunch of really good, helpful conversations, some of the stuff that we've talked about on the show. Uh, but if you missed that, uh, all of those, uh, the panel discussion and the main talks, and also, Joseph, I know you moderated a panel on the SAFE Act uh, legislation that FRC has been involved in. 
And so all of those now have been archived and are available at prayvotestand.org under the archive tab. Uh, some of the talks that I just mentioned are also at frc.org slash worldview. So people can now see those and watch them on demand. Now, and thank you for that, David. I want to get to the, the headline question for this segment. I'm sure that you have encountered this, discussing all sorts of kind of cultural issues. People say, well, Jesus didn't talk about it. And they, they make that argument as a way of suggesting that Jesus either doesn't care, is kind of ambivalent, or that he supports their position. What's the right response to that? Well, the right response is just doing rigorous Christian ethics. So you know, the, the actual, the whole enterprise of what we now call Christian ethics is looking at what the Bible teaches uh, about a host of issues and then applying it to, to the issues uh, that we deal with uh, kind of in our everyday life. Because um, it's true, the Bible uh, doesn't speak to every issue. So Joseph, I know you wrote an article that is kind of the basis of this conversation that our listeners and viewers can find at frc.org. You, you mentioned a couple of issues even in your article. You know, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, how to think about hijackers fi- flying planes uh, into buildings or even about the issue of sexual assault, uh, you know, explicitly. Uh, but for us to say that, you know, the Bible doesn't speak to those issues would not be a proper way of doing Christian theology or Christian ethics uh, because the Bible did, does give us very good principles. It gives us a framework for what we would call moral reasoning. Uh, but there's not a chapter and verse. There's not a thus saith the Lord uh, for every issue that we're going to encounter. But there is a moral framework uh, from which we can deduce uh, what the posture and the orientation of the Bible is for a whole host of issues. That's a really good point. And and this argument, the idea that Jesus did not talk about it, this fits into the category of what's called an argument from silence. And if anybody who's taken a logic class has, who has studied fallacies will recognize an argument from silence as a logical fallacy. And basically what that is, is it suggests that because there's no evidence for something, that means something didn't happen. And as a parent, maybe one of the best examples I can come up with is when my children, uh, they don't use these arguments uh, these days, they're a little older, but when they were younger, they sometimes would say, well, you didn't see me do it after, uh, after being asked about whether they had done something, which of course is basically an admission that they did it, but they don't think it can be proven because no one was there to witness it, even though there's all sorts of evidence. But what my child is doing in that case, or a child is doing that in that case, is they are attempting an argument from silence. And they're suggesting that because there's not a ton of evidence, or at least not an evidence that I'm aware of, therefore you can't prove it, therefore I'm off the hook, therefore I can do uh, whatever I want. What is it behind, what is the instinct that drives us to make these kind of arguments, do you think? Yeah, well, I think the instinct in, uh, behind that, that those arguments from silence that we make is that we kind of want to have things our way. Uh, you know, all of us, Joseph, are, are, are sinful. Uh, we know from our Christian, our biblical worldview that we live in a fallen world. Genesis 3 explains that. And so it, 
Never underestimate uh, a person's ability to rationalize or justify a moral position they want to have, even if they know that it's contrary to Scripture. Let me just give you one example, Joseph. You know, I was smiling when you gave the example of your children. You know, that that might be cute when a child's trying to uh, cover their tracks for such an issue. Uh, But it it becomes dangerous uh, when you hear arguments from silence, uh, specifically when people are really pushing an agenda that's antithetical to what the Scripture teaches. let me give you one very common argument that you'll hear uh, is that, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, uh, and therefore Jesus would say that these uh, committed same-sex relationships are morally praiseworthy. You, you hear that all the time, and it's true. Uh, Jesus never, uh, is recorded in the Gospels, ever explicitly rege- uh, addressed the issue of homosexuality. But to say Jesus had nothing to say about it, to to assume that he would be okay with what we call, you know, the whole LGBT rights movement, is, that's an argument from silence that is absolutely wrong. We know uh, that Jesus upheld the Old Testament. What did he do? He he said in the Sermon on the Mount, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish it or overturn it. We know that as a faithful first century Jewish man, Jesus had a high view for the Old Testament that had clear teaching on God's design for marriage, God's design for sexuality. When Jesus is asked about divorce, what does he do? He goes to Genesis 1 and 2, where we have the Bible's teaching on marriage, that it's exclusive, that it's permanent, that it's a covenant, uh, that there's sexual differentiation between marriage, between a man and a woman. So while it might be true that Jesus, as far as the Gospels go, never directly addressed this specific issue, to say that he would be okay with something he clearly would not be is a logical fallacy uh, that is twisting uh, scripture to fit someone's agenda, and that is deadly when that happens. And I think the big point there, and I think kind of the big E on the eye chart in this conversation, for those of us who are having theological conversations, trying to understand how scripture applies to our lives, we have to ask ourselves if we actually want to know the answer to that question. Yes. Because those who are making these arguments from silence and those who are saying, who are relying on the fact that Jesus is not recorded as having a conversation about this specific issue, like flying airplanes into buildings or slavery or anything like that. Do we actually want to know what Jesus Mm. thinks about the issue? And if we don't, if we're trying to, if we're trying to fashion a God in our image, if we're trying to get Jesus on our side rhetorically, if we're trying to convince ourselves and convince the world that Jesus agrees with me, those are the kind of arguments we make. However, if the goal is to understand what Jesus actually thinks, then we come at it from a very different posture, which is, you know, your will be done, not my will be done. What do you think? And how can I order my life around what God has said is true about the universe? I think those are very different attitudes, aren't they? No, it is, Joseph. And I think that's such an important part of the thinking through uh, all these things we're thinking about, but the, the posture of uh, the way we do ethics as Christians, because it's true, the impulse of every single person, because we're fallen, is, you know, again, like I said earlier, there's no limitations to the creativity and the flexibility, the, the, the moral gymnastics that we're willing to do to get our way. Uh, but as Christians, when we find ourselves trying to rationalize or justify ourselves, I think what you just said, Joseph, is so key. Where is our heart? What's the posture of our heart? Are we 
asking the Lord if we are submitting to his will or are we trying to get our way and have him kind of come along with us. And so I think as Christians, that attitude of humility, that attitude of submission, uh, that prayer that uh, Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, your will be done, that needs to be the fundamental orientation of everyone who follows Jesus, especially when it comes uh, to these issues that we deal with in Christian ethics. Are we trying to conform ourselves to God or is are we trying to make God conform to us? That to me is the underlying question. Now, Thomas Jefferson is famous for his red letter Bible in which he basically wanted to cut everything else out that he didn't like. And, and there are people who just want to focus on uh, the red letters of the Bible. Why is it problematic to build a theology that focuses on the red letters and ignores everything else in Scripture? Oh, great question. Actually, earlier this day, Joseph, I was at Museum of the Bible looking at a copy of Jefferson's Bible. So I saw it just a couple of hours ago. And uh, I think to answer your question directly, uh, yeah, it's good to have, you know, to the red letter Bibles to see the words that Jesus spoke. It's good to draw attention to those. Uh, but Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for reproof, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Every good work. And so as Christians, we need to realize uh, we have a high view of Scripture. When we say we have a high view of Scripture, that, that's Old Testament, New Testament. That's every book of Scripture uh, because that's what God has given us. And it's amazing, Joseph. You know, God didn't have to reveal himself to us through his word. But he graciously did. He reveals himself through his word, teaches us about himself, teaches us about us, teaches us about the world. And so when we're coming to these questions about our lifestyle and about ethics and morality, we have the whole counsel of God's word uh, from which we can draw on uh, to make these decisions. And let's remember that when we ignore everything that isn't in the red letters, we are essentially discarding what Jesus considered scripture to be. Uh, that was the scripture that he memorized. That was the scripture that he spent his 30 years in preparation of ministry, memorizing, studying, uh, quoting, ultimately, uh, throughout his ministry. So if we discard all of that, then we're essentially saying Jesus was citing as authority uh, things that are not authoritative, and that ultimately undermines uh, what we think of Jesus. But an, a, a fundamental question in this um, what's the way to know what God thinks about something if the issue is not specifically addressed in, in Scripture? Internet policy, right? There's Some of this is technological. Some of this is just cultural changes. Is there a way to actually uh, to find out what God thinks about something if the issue because of technology and time or whatever uh, was not specifically addressed when Scripture was written? Right. And so, Joseph, I think that goes back to what we were talking about a second ago is that, you know, the Bible doesn't give us specifications for every little detail. It doesn't tell us, you know, if a bank robber should get two years in prison or five years on immigration. It doesn't tell us if we should let 60,000 people in the country or 25,000 people in the country each year. It does give us a moral framework. It gives us principles. And so that's why when I teach around the country, I was teaching in church a couple days ago, people were asking questions about this. And I just said, you know, what the Bible does, it gives us principles. Uh, if you have a biblical worldview, you're going to have a high view of family. And that will affect issues of abortion and uh, adoption and uh, divorce. Uh, you'll have a high view of life, which obviously will affect uh, these issues we deal with. Uh, and so I think to get to your point directly, Joseph, uh, we need to read the whole counsel of God's word and we need to be reading in community with other believers. And that'll help us with our moral decision making. You know, I'm a lawyer and 
lawyers deal in codes. And if you take uh, the legal code of the United States, I don't remember how many rooms it fills at this point, but there's a lot of them. And it's interesting to note that God gave us 10 commandments to basically govern all of human behavior. But the reason the legal profession even exists is because humans, since the beginning of time, have been trying to rationalize that their particular form of theft isn't actually covered by thou shalt not steal. And so we have to have laws against embezzlement and tax fraud and all of these things when really God thought he explained it to us and expects us to understand that thou shalt not steal uh, means don't steal from your employer, don't steal from your, uh, your neighbor, don't steal from the government, don't steal from anybody. But because we're all saying, well, it doesn't explicitly uh, forbid my kind of behavior, therefore it's okay. So we have lawyers and politicians and legislators writing all these rules to deal with this justification and ultimately, it's because we're always making arguments from silence, and we're trying to say that because it's not specifically forbidden, even though it's probably wrong, it's okay for me to do that. Um, so again, folks, if you want to see this whole argument, we did write it up, uh, frc.org slash worldview. The article is What to Believe About Issues Jesus Didn't Discuss. Uh, we commend that to you, frc.org slash worldview. David, before I let you go, one other issue uh, you have been involved in this week uh, with some others. The Dobbs case is coming up. You are part of organizing churches around this. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, just yesterday we did a nationwide webinar. We had just under a thousand pastors and ministry leaders who Skyped in. They heard messages from Al Mohler, Adam Greenway, Archbishop Nauman, other national leaders. I got to share briefly with the group. And uh, it's exciting. This, this Dobbs case oral arguments are December the 1st. And this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to see Roe v. Wade overturned. And so FRC is part of this coalition, Joseph, uh, that is working uh, to g galvanize the nation to pray in the lead up to this case. And you'll just stay tuned for more information on how you can be a part of this. And you do need to be a part of it. David Clawson, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And friends, that's the program we have for today. Encourage you to be in prayer for Dobbs and our country as we continue to seek God's face. We need it. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.